Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation and our Douglas and Sarah Allison Auditorium. We, of course, welcome those who join us on our Heritage.org website on all of these occasions. Uh, For our in-house guests, we would ask that courtesy to see that our mobile devices have been silenced, just turned off as we prepare to begin. And, of course, for those watching online as well as in the future, you're welcome to send questions or comments at any time, simply emailing speaker at Heritage.org. Hosting our program this afternoon is James Phillips, Senior Research Fellow for Middle Eastern Affairs. He is a veteran foreign policy specialist. He has written widely on Middle Eastern issues and international terrorism since joining us here in 1979. He has authored dozens of papers on Iran, its nuclear program, and use of terrorism, and has testified before Congress on Iran's nuclear program as well as other Middle East security issues. Please join me in welcoming Jim Phillips. Jim. Thanks, John. Welcome to Heritage Foundation. Uh, We're approaching uh, a key inflection point in the evolution of the uh, Reagan-Trump administration's uh, Iran policy. Uh, President Trump last January set a deadline of uh, May 12th to either end or mend uh, the Iran nuclear agreement, and negotiations are ongoing uh, between the U.S., Britain, France, and Germany to address uh, some of the flaws of that deal, including the sunset of key restrictions on uranium enrichment, uh, Iran's advancing missile program, which should be considered in the context of Uh, the nuclear program, and the inadequate verification measures included in the deal. It's unclear whether a satisfactory arrangement uh, or agreement between the U.S. and Britain, France, and Germany uh, can be reached by the the president's deadline. Uh, More importantly, it's unclear what the broader uh, strategy is for the administration going forward on uh, Iran nuclear issue. Uh, the president has hinted uh, that he may be open to negotiating a stronger deal directly with Iran, but there's no clear path for doing that. On Monday, uh, the plot thickened when Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, gave a dramatic presentation revealing Uh, stolen documents uh, from Iran's nuclear program that confirmed long-standing suspicions about Iran's nuclear ambitions. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo uh, confirmed that these documents uh, are, in fact, authentic and said that it showed that Iran, the Iran nuclear deal was built uh, on Iran's lies on that issue. At a minimum, the revelations will increase pressure 
for stronger inspections and verification measures and perhaps even uh, precise targets for IAEA uh, further investigation. Uh, but the revelations also, I think, make it much more likely that the administration will scrap the nuclear deal entirely. Uh, given the crumbling foundations of this agreement, uh, should the U.S. walk away or should it try to fix the agreement? To answer these and other questions, we're fortunate to have with us today a panel of distinguished uh, experts, including uh, Richard Goldberg of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies and Ilan Berman of the American Foreign Policy Council. And I'll introduce them each in turn. Uh, but our first speaker is Michael Rubin. Uh, Michael is a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and a former Iran desk officer in the office of the Secretary of Defense. He's also a senior lecturer at the Naval Postgraduate School's Department of National Security Affairs and an Iran analyst for the U.S. Army's Foreign Military Studies Office. In addition to his policy work, he has authored a number of books, academic articles, and encyclopedia entries about Iran. Uh, Michael? Thank you very much, Jim. Uh, let me just be upfront. There are certain things we now know that we didn't know before. While a lot of the press has been focusing on whether or not that tremendous trove that Benjamin Netanyahu presented represented new material or not, let me talk about some of the other issues for a second that we now know to be true. Number one, Mohammad Javad Zarif, the Iran's foreign minister, lied. He had said repeatedly that Iran never really had a nuclear program that it was a figment of Western imagination, uh, well, 100,000 documents suggest that he is just a consummate liar. Being able to speak English to the American Secretary of State is not a magic formula that proves someone's sincerity. Now, we've been in a situation with Mohammad Javad Zarif before in 2003 when we were conducting, at the time, secret negotiations ahead of the Operation Iraqi Freedom, and Mohammad Javad Zarif then... Iran's UN ambassador promised that Iran wouldn't interfere in Iraq and specifically wouldn't send the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps or other militiamen in. And yet, according to the Iranian press, as soon as the balloon went up, that's exactly what Iran did. There were two possibilities at the time. Either Mohammad Javad Zarif lied and knew he was lying, or he was being sincere but didn't have any control over the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. Whichever one it was, it would be a bad situation uh, and, and counterproductive to trust someone like that. But in this case, he's also lied with regard to the idea that Iran wasn't really fighting in Syria, and yet Tasneem News Agency, which is affiliated with the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, had acknowledged in May 2016 that the IRGC had already lost a 1,000 of its fighters inside Syria. That's some train and assist um, program. And as soon as Mohammad Javad Zarif had said this, an Iranian major general was killed fighting in Syria. The point of this is that there's a track record here, and we need to be very, very careful about any agreement um, when we're relying on the personal, um, personal trust, if you will, of someone like Mohammad Javad Zarif. One of the other things that hasn't been brought up is Ayatollah Khamenei's fatwa. President Obama cited this as proof that the Iranians were sincere about resolving the nuclear program. The fatwa said that Iran found, that Khamenei found that nuclear weapons were illegal, that, that Iran would never, would never build them. And yet, all these documents show that's exactly what Iran was doing. 
And therefore, the idea that we put our faith in Iran because of some supposed fatwa, which, by the way, was never written down and has never been revealed in any consistent format, it suggests that that was just one big propaganda play. The last thing we need to recognize is that the 2007 National Intelligence Estimate was flat-out wrong. This is a problem of the U.S. intelligence community. In 2003, there was a finding that Iran was developing nuclear weapons. In 2007, to much um, public um, debate, the NIE, the National Intelligence Council, released a new National Intelligence Estimate, the consensus document, the consensus finding of the U.S. intelligence community, finding that Iran had stopped with its nuclear program in 2003 or 2004. Now, the International Atomic Energy Agency, in defending itself after Prime Minister Netanyahu revealed these documents, said that they had no evidence that Iran had been experimenting with nuclear weapons design or anything like that since 2009, which means in 2007, the consensus document of the U.S. intelligence community was wrong, and we haven't had any introspection about the mistakes which were made in that account. Unfortunately, it seems that our new national security advisor, John Bolton, was right when he said that the 2007 national intelligence estimate was crafted in a way to constrain debate. In other words, it was really the pinnacle of intelligence politicization. Now, when it comes to nuclear weapons, you can think of this in terms of, from a non-technical non aspect, of three major components to a nuclear weapons program. One is the ability to enrich uranium to weapons grade. And this is the thing that was most controversial about the 2007 National Intelligence Estimate, because it changed the definition to basically say that such enrichment wasn't proof or, or wasn't a component of a military program. Then you have, and so we now know, and it's no secret, that Iran has the ability to enrich uranium. They have the technology to do so. The second component is the warhead design. And that's what these documents showed without, beyond any reasonable doubt. And the third component is a delivery platform, ballistic missiles and so forth. And this is something that, unfortunately, Secretary of State John Kerry gave the Iranians a free pass on. What would happen if Trump walks away from the deal? Frankly, despite the hyperbole in the public debate, not much of anything. And the fact of the matter is, the, when it comes to unilateral sanctions, the administration which has been toughest on Iran over the years has been Bill Clinton's administration. If you go back to 1994 and 1995 with the executive orders forbidding um, investment and then going into the extraterritoriality uh, aspect of this, forbidding uh, European subsidiaries or European partners to invest, and then you had the Iran-Libya Sanctions Act in 1996, which was willing to, to sanction European companies, non-American companies that were doing this. Yeah, the Europeans complained a lot. But no matter what their presidents or prime ministers might say, if you are the chairman of a European business and you're worried about your bottom line, you're worried you don't want to become that diplomatic football. You don't want to take the risk of the United States slapping your company with fines and with sanctions. And therefore, I think we need to stop paying attention so much to what some of the European leaders say and recognize, number one, there is a precedent of unilateral sanctions. And number two, uh, European companies tend to play ball. The danger always is when European governments give loan guarantees to European businesses and then European taxpayers are on the hook. But that's a different issue. I also want to say that regardless of what Donald Trump decides to do, the Joint Conference of Plan of Action was never meant to be a get-out-of-jail-free card. 
when it came to Iran and Iran's work on ballistic missiles and Iran's work on terrorism. While the press was paying attention to everything which Benjamin Netanyahu was saying and choosing to debate that, something really interesting happened. The Moroccans broke diplomatic relations with the Islamic Republic of Iran, and why is that? The reason was because they had caught the Iranians red-handed smuggling various missiles to anti-Moroccan terrorists, the Polisario Front, in Algeria. This is an indication that Iran is acting on behalf of ideology and not grievance simply isn't an issue which is, and restoration of grievance isn't the key to sort of bringing Iran back in into the fold. We also have lots of terrorism in, in Yemen as well. I spent about five months in Yemen and I've actually visited arms markets in Yemen. And I can tell you, I saw lots of weaponry in those arms markets, but I never saw anti-ship missiles. They're not known, Yemeni tribesmen who are fighting the government aren't known for desiring to get their hands on anti-ship missiles. That is until recently when the Iranians started providing them. This is a real problem. Now, in conclusion, admittedly, I'm a historian, so I get paid to predict the past. And admittedly, I only get that right about half the time. But a few things I would like to note. Iran isn't the first country which entered into negotiations to give up a controversial or covert nuclear program. Of course, uh, Kazakhstan, Belarus, and Ukraine gave up their legacy programs. Then in 1991, you had South Africa decide that they were going to come in from the cold. And they decided to work with the International Atomic Energy Agency. And even though you had a fully compliant South African government, it took the IAEA 19 years to certify South Africa as clean. And yet, they're willing to turn a blind eye to Iran's program, to let Iran self-test, which is like, I'm from Philadelphia, so it's like letting the New England Patriots do their own um, controls on whether or not they're deflating footballs or, or using steroids or anything like that. And the fact of the matter is, it wouldn't fly anywhere except for the IAEA. And admittedly, the IAEA was under tremendous pressure, not just from the Russians and the Chinese, but unfortunately also from the US government, and allowed themselves to politicize intelligence and completely soil their own reputation. They have a lot of accounting to do. Remember that between 1980 and 1991, the International Atomic Energy Agency already has one major fail when they gave the Iraqis 11 clean bills of health when it turned out after the liberation of Kuwait that we found unequivocally, and Saddam Hussein's son-in-law defected and said that Iraq really did have a nuclear weapons program. Now, this isn't the first time Iran has engaged in such a strategy. The National Security Advisor, the Supreme National Security Advisor between 1998 and 2005, well, I'm sorry, between 1988 and 2005, was Hassan Rouhani. Between 2003 and 2005, he had entered into negotiations with the Europeans and agreed, and the, the Americans whispering behind his ear, and um, the Europeans' ears, and he had agreed to suspend uranium enrichment. And later on, when he was defending himself against some of his own domestic critics, he said, look, the reason why I agreed to do this was because we needed to focus on other elements of our special projects. And therefore, we needed to stop the, um, the centrifuges from spinning anyway so we could install more. And this way, we were able to basically control our own time frame. Now, when he was stepping down on February 9th, 2005, 
Hassan Rouhani gave a speech at Ferdos University in Mashhad in which he outlined all the various times which the Iranians had defeated the, uh, the United States of America. And he said, our strategy is clear. We engage in, and I quote, a doctrine of surprise, where we lull them into complacency with dialogue, and then we deliver the knockout blow. And unfortunately, fool me once, fool me twice. Let's hope we're not fooled a third time. And with that, let me turn the floor over. Thanks, Michael. Our next speaker is Richard Goldberg. Uh, Richard's the senior advisor at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. He's a former senior Senate aide and was a lead author and negotiator of the toughest sanctions leveled against Iran from 2011 to 2013. Richard worked for years on ballistic missile defense cooperation with Israel to defend against Iranian missiles and led efforts to impose sanctions on Iran for the regime's abuse of human rights. Separately, he's a Navy Reserve Intel officer with service on the Joint Staff and in Afghanistan. Uh, Richard? Thank you so much for having me and honored to be up here with, with my fellow uh, panelists. I think it's important before moving forward to look backwards just a couple of years, because all too often in Washington, it's what's right in front of us and the debate currently and politics gets wrapped up in it. And when we talk about whether or not the president should leave the deal, what did the Israeli intelligence findings mean? It's important to step back and understand how we got here into the JCPOA to begin with. And I'm not a historian, but I lived through this history and all of you did as well started in 2013. Up until then, we had what appeared to American eyes to be a crazy man in Tehran in Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. And it was very easy to understand the threat of Iran because he vocalized it. He said exactly what their intentions were every day. And then suddenly, the Obama administration sold us on a narrative that a new president had come to Iran. And this was a moderate president. This was a reformist president. This was somebody who was really going to take Iran in a new direction, and we had to be ready to embrace that opportunity. Because this could be the moment if we negotiate some sort of framework that Iran would come into the community of nations. It could be the start of something magical where terrorism goes away from this leading state sponsor of terrorism, where missiles are no longer used as threats, where it would not expand throughout the region in nefarious ways to intimidate our allies, and where one day our own unilateral sanctions would go away and we need to have normalization of ties and trade. What have we learned since then? Well, that's why, just one step back, so because of that narrative, we decided to reverse long-standing precedent from the United Nations Security Council with regard to two very important things. One was the enrichment of uranium. Uh, two was allowing Iran to keep and control equipment, facilities, and capabilities that could be used in the production of nuclear weapons. For a long time, we considered the entirety of Iran's nuclear program absolutely illicit. They cannot control it. We cannot trust them until there is absolute denuclearization inside Iran. We cannot be happy as an international community. Based on this idea that we could trust Iran now, that they would come clean on their any sort of past military dimensions of their nuclear program, and we'd even let them talk to the IAEA. 
and we'll have the director issue a report. And so long as that report comes back with no worries, that there is no current intention to build nuclear weapons, then sanctions relief will go forward. We will allow Iran to maintain its capabilities to produce nuclear weapons under our international monitoring. And that is the JCPOA today. And what did we see in the last couple of years? Not only did they, in Iran, get to retain all their capabilities to one day build a nuclear weapon, if that's what they so chose, but also took advantage of the sanctions relief, our toughest sanctions being taken off the government to expand throughout the region, to uh, double down in Syria to protect their ally in Bashar al-Assad and save him during the Civil War, to expand uh, to support Houthi rebels uh, who are basically now Hezbollah Houthis in Yemen uh, and now launch missile attacks against Saudi Arabia. All of that comes from the JCPOA. And so we entered into, over the last several months, a fixed negotiation, as it's called, with our European allies to see if we could stay within the premise of this deal, stay within the core elements of the deal that allow Iran to maintain its nuclear capabilities, that allow Iran to maintain an ability to enrich on its own soil and control nuclear materials, but fix it around the edges to make President Trump more comfortable with it since he doesn't seem to like the deal. And so the three pillars of this negotiation were in some ways flawed from the start because our European allies that we were negotiating with had a different intention. Their intention wasn't to see behavioral change in Iran. Their intention was to preserve a deal that allows them to increase trade with Iran. They have, unlike the United States, companies who for many years, since our own unilateral sanctions went into effect many, many years ago, they've had trading relations with Iran. They like making money on Iran. Their companies see a market that they can do business in. And so, so long as they could come up with parameters that kept the United States in the deal, kept United States secondary sanctions, as they're called, which would apply to their companies and their banks from staying off, then that trade can continue. So what were the three parameters? Number one, that we would talk about limiting or curtailing or imposing some sort of sanctions to stop Iran from developing longer-range missiles. Note the term longer-range missiles. Late last year, we learned from the Supreme Leader and the IRGC commander that Iran had declared, similar to its fatwa that it would never develop nuclear weapons, that they would limit the range of their missiles to 2,000 kilometers. So guess where the negotiation with the Europeans came on ballistic missiles? Anything over a 2,000-kilometer missile test, a, a, a missile that's capable of traveling farther than 2,000 kilometers, that would win uh, international sanctions. Anything in their existing arsenal, would not. So Iran gets to keep the delivery mechanisms that Michael just told you about. With regard to inspections, uh, one of the key concerns that the Trump administration has raised over and over again and several experts in the nuclear field have raised is that there is an impossibility to truly verify this agreement without access to military sites in addition to the sites that are currently under surveillance. And Iran has declared it will never allow a single inspector into a military site. So what did the Europeans say? Okay, well, we agree with you. We should, we should strongly urge and encourage and pressure the IAEA to inspect military sites. But unfortunately, the IAEA could do that today if they wanted to. They could have done that for the last couple of years. And from tradition and a fear of breaking down the deal, 
those requests don't happen because they know the Iranians will say no. And that dynamic won't change based on the fix that was being negotiated. And as we also learned last week, on a simple warehouse that apparently was housing the entire nuclear weapons archive of Iran, we don't always know what we don't know, and certainly the IAEA doesn't know what it doesn't know. And the final piece, of course, was on the issue of sunsets and when the deal could expire on certain key provisions uh, that restrict Iran on the enrichment side, on the installation of centrifuges, and on delivery of arms, import of arms. And this is a key issue for the Trump administration. And it's a key issue for Iran because for, for Iran and for obviously for the Europeans, because they don't want to trigger an Iranian exit from the deal, which would collapse their trading relations because US sanctions would come back. And this was the key part that was really looking like it was on the ropes in the current US E3 negotiations because the E3 could never agree to actually eliminate these sunsets for fear of an Iranian exit or accusation of a violation of the deal. And so they were trying to work around it. What could be something that looks like it's sunsets that they could sell to President Trump? But when we get down to it in 2025, we'll have a discussion about what the Iranians are really doing, and maybe sanctions will come back, maybe not. Something we could sell to the Iranians at the same time as selling it to President Trump. That was the state of the fixed negotiations as of a couple weeks ago. And it was already looking like it was on life support. I think what we learned from the intelligence information that was revealed by the Prime Minister of Israel and by Israeli intelligence is that we've been negotiating over the wrong things. The idea, the fundamental idea that we can trust Iran, that they've given up their nuclear weapons intentions, that they're not looking to one day say to us, no matter whether there's a sunset or not, you know what? We have our own built-in sunset to this deal. It's called a time of our choosing. We have the capabilities. We have the intent. We have the infrastructure and the architecture and the organization. We've used all of this time to develop more advanced, precise missiles. We've been doing a lot of research and development allowed under the deal on advanced centrifuges, and we're ready to go on those. And we can say goodbye now to international inspectors, and we're going to have nuclear weapons, and it'll happen quickly. We now know that is their intention, which is what critics of the JCPOA have said from the very beginning of this deal. And in that, Iran broke its fundamental commitment in the deal, that they will never pursue nuclear weapons the precondition of sanctions relief under the deal, that they would come clean on their past military dimensions and anything that they're keeping right now that could be used to build nuclear weapons. That means that we have to go back to formula on this and any other agreement. And that's why if you look at Secretary Pompeo's statement from Monday night, it's very clear and very important what he says the intelligence shows us the extent of Iranian lies and deceptions, and that must force us to call into question whether Iran can be trusted to enrich and keep nuclear materials. That is a fundamental reset of the thinking of the JCPOA. It is going back in time to long-standing international precedent and commitments and calls on Iran to halt its entire nuclear program. And if you think about it, 
at a time when this administration is negotiating or about to enter negotiations possibly with the North Koreans, the standard for North Korea is maximum pressure in, in place and never leaving until North Korea has taken the steps to verifiably and irreversibly denuclearize. That should be the same standard for Iran. And that is exactly where, hopefully, the Trump administration is going now. Now, they have a decision in front of them on the 12th, and I'll leave you with this and turn over the day after and other issues to Iran. May 12th is coming up. Important to remember that May 12th is not a deadline to report to Congress. There's some confusion out there. It's not a deadline that, he, that automatically the entire deal collapses and sanctions come back. It is a deadline for renewal of one waiver on one law governing one piece of the sanctions architecture that was in place on Iran. Now it's a big one, the Central Bank of Iran. And this has to do with locking down their assets overseas. This has to do with requirements to reduce imports of Iranian crude if you do business with Iran through its central bank uh, for the import of such oil. So it, it, it's big. And it comes back automatically. Congress doesn't get a say. But it's not the only thing that needs to happen if you're truly exiting the deal and returning to maximum pressure. There's a lot of executive action that has to happen, a lot of other banks that have to be redesignated, companies that have to go back on lists, people that have to have their assets frozen, uh, a lot of things like that, other laws that need waivers rescinded. And that's an open question what the administration intends to do. But if there is a true exit, there's going to have to be a comprehensive strategy in place. And that's diplomatic, information, military, and economic. And there's a lot we can talk about that. I know Alon will talk about some of it, and look forward to your questions. Thank you, Richard. Our uh, cleanup speaker is Elon Berman. He's the senior vice president of the American Foreign Policy Council, which is based in Washington. He's an expert on the regional security in the Middle East, Central Asia, and Russia. Uh, he has consulted for both the CIA and the U.S. Department of Defense and provided assistance on foreign policy and national security issues to a range of governmental agencies and congressional offices. He's also been called one of America's leading experts on the Middle East and Iran by CNN. Ilan? Well, thank you, Jim. And it's always great to be back here, and it's always uh, great to have a sort of a public conversation about you know, uh, something that's so fast-moving and so potentially uh, dramatic in terms of implications. Um, I, Rich is, I think, right. Um, I, I sort of I want to focus not on where we've been. I think uh, Michael and Rich have done a masterful job at sort of laying this out. I want to sort of spend the bulk of my time talking about uh, what happens now and what happens next, because my sense is that's really where the conversa conversation is. Um, so I'm a, I'm a, a big fan of playing the field, including the political field as it lies, and, and sort of my, my spider sense is telling me that, that the administration is now uh, committed to an exit from the deal. The, the only question is how they plan to exit this deal, and we'll talk about this in a second. Um, first of all, uh, I'm sort of, uh, I, I'm pretty convinced it's the case because personnel is policy. And so over the last uh, year, you've had a Trump administration that's been pretty evenly divided uh, between folks who wanted to fix the deal uh, and folks who wanted to nix it, uh, folks who thought that the deal was possible to retain with certain improvements on the margins or substantively, and folks who believed uh, fundamentally that the deal was flawed and needs to be sort of overturned in order to move forward on Iran policy. 
And I think the pendulum has swung uh, decisively in the direction of the Nixers uh, with the uh, incoming national security advisor, well, the, the advent of uh, the national security advisor, John Bolton, uh, with the recent confirmation of Mike Pompeo as Secretary of State, we're looking at a critical mass of folks who are deeply, deeply skeptical of the Iran nuclear deal and are willing to take pretty resolute uh, action in order to sort of uh, to move beyond it. Um, and in this context, I think it's necessary to talk about where Jim started, which is uh, the revelations that we heard earlier this week from Prime Minister Netanyahu. Um, and, you know, if you guys have, have spent any time at all on social media in the last few days, what you see is this heated debate between folks who are deeply, deeply ideologically committed to preserving the deal and folks who are technical experts and have PhDs in thermodynamics who are saying there's actually some there there, right? Uh, we don't exactly know how much because, candidly, we haven't read everything, right? So it's always, uh, it's always useful to sort of to read the information before you jump to conclusions. But if you're political worldview is uh, implicated in, in a certain stance, it sort of makes you jump the gun a little bit. And I think that's what you're seeing on social media. But the reality is, uh, if you get down to the core of what the Prime Minister said, uh, the goal wasn't to reveal a completely new set of facts. The goal was to remind uh, audiences, in, in particular one audience member uh, who absorbs information visually, that this is a regime that can't be trusted, that there are things that Iran has been doing that run counter, uh, counter to both the spirit and the letter of the JCPOA. Um, and it's, it wasn't intended to uh, sort of uh, to convince the president as much as it was intended to reinforce the direction that he's headed in anyway, right? So I think that's sort of a good frame to think about uh, sort of what comes next, because uh, there, first of all, there are different ways of, of leaving the deal. Um, there is uh, always the, uh, the possibility that uh, when President Trump makes a decision about the Iran nuclear deal, he decides to go for a big splash and say that, you know, the deal is now defunct, where the United States has, has moved away from the deal. There's also a way in which you bridge the two sides, uh, in which you uh, talk about uh, both uh, fixing and nixing at the same time, a supplementary, uh, supplemental agreement that is so robust and so powerful uh, that uh, Iran is the one that walks away from this coalition, uh, you know, including new restrictions on ballistic missile uh, development, including new restrictions on or new expanded access to international inspectors, things that Iran has signaled clearly they're not willing to, willing to accept. Uh, and at the end of the day, you know, we can sort of have a debate about which, which way would be better, but I think the overall direction uh, where we're heading is this. So... The operative question is, what comes next? What should we be thinking about? And this is something that's been occupying uh, the U.S. government and various agencies within the U.S. government for uh, quite a while now. Uh, and I would argue, uh, right, so you can sort of differ on the specifics, but I would argue that uh, State Department, Pentagon, National Security Council really need to be focusing on, on at least three major problems uh, that a comprehensive strategy towards Iran will need to address after, on the day after uh, the JCPOA. The first is military, uh, because uh, it is not an exaggeration to say that over the last half decade, Iran has erected something resembling an imperial project in the Middle East. You have Iranian officials who have boasted publicly about the fact that uh, their regime now controls four separate capitals uh, in the Middle East, uh, in addition to Tehran, uh, Sana'a Yemen and Beirut, Lebanon, on Baghdad, Iraq, and Damascus, Syria. 
And if you look on a map, and we don't have one here, but if, if you sort of, you know, if you're watching at home or if you uh, go, go to your computer and you Google, you could see uh, <coughs> publicly available maps that show the zone of territorial control that Iran now enjoys, which stretches from the territory of the Islamic Republic all the way to the Eastern Mediterranean because of the fragility of the Iraqi government, because there are Shiite militias uh, that are beholden to Iran that are now part of the Ministry of Interior of Iraq, because Iran controls the ground in the battle space that is now the Syrian theater, and because Iran controls, uh, by proxy, the south of Lebanon, uh, because of its deep and intimate relationship, uh, continuing relationship with uh, the Shiite militia Hezbollah. Um, and this imperial project is uh, a matter of intense concern, uh, certainly for the United States, but even more so for our allies in the region that aren't separated from uh, Iran's expansion by uh, geography. Uh, and in particular, uh, you know, I'll sort of, I'll, we'll end up there in a couple of minutes, but in particular, uh, the Israelis are very concerned that this imperial project has brought Iran, which they consider an existential threat, much closer to their territorial boundaries than it ever has been before. The second military problem that we're looking at is we're looking at uh, a new Iranian foreign legion. Uh, and so uh, to unpack this a little bit, uh, Iran has not one but two armies. It has a standing army known as the Artesh. This is the conventional force that fought the Iraqis during the eight years of the Iran-Iraq war during the 1980s. And it has a clerical army known as the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, uh, or the Pazdaran, which are, the. this is sort of, uh, for lack of a better Explanation, this is the varsity. The, these are the guys that control uh, the ballistic missile arsenal, the nuclear arsenal, uh, uh, expeditionary uh, terrorist acts abroad, things like that. The Revolutionary Guard have been instrumental in establishing a third foreign legion for the Iranians, a foreign legion made up of Shiites from Afghanistan, Shiites from Pakistan, Shiites from Yemen, Shiites from Iraq, Shiites from Syria, that they have deployed into the Syrian space. Uh, and the scope of this legion varies, right? The uh, U.S. intelligence community estimates that it is uh, roughly 40,000 fighters. Uh, the Israelis estimated at about double that, about 80, 82,000 foreign fighters. But however you rack and stack, you have to understand that this is a very significant threat, and it's a very significant force multiplier for Iranian interests on the ground. And it's something that's going to need to be addressed by the U.S. military and by our allies uh, as we begin to think strategically about the Syria space. Um, the uh, sort of the second uh, big ticket item that we need to think about is economic, um, and there's an imme there's immediate action that can be taken, and there's uh, follow-on actions that can be taken. Uh, uh, the center of gravity for Iran is the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, which is much more than simply a military or a clerical force. It is an economic powerhouse within the Islamic Republic itself. Uh, by back of the envelope cal calculations. The IRGC controls a third or more of the Iranian national economy, which means that targeting them uh, through economic, uh, through measures of economic pressure, will have a dramatic effect both on the overall economic health of Iran and also on the uh, ability of the Islamic Republic to operationalize a lot of this neo-imperial strategy that it's pursuing. Um, and there are ways to do that, and there are ways to do that very simply. Uh, you could uh, take a look at IRGC-linked commercial actors. Uh, for example, like Iran Air, uh, the Iranian national air carrier, which was de-designated as part of the negotiations over the JCPOA, 
uh, and which has now become a critical component of that foreign legion. It is the air bridge that has, uh, and there's documentary evidence of this on the internet, that has uh, devoted much time and resources to bringing those Shiite foreign fighters into the Syria theater uh, on behalf of the Iranian regime and on behalf of the IRGC. Um, you could also uh, do things like uh, Rich mentioned. Uh, you could sort of begin to think more strategically about Iran's central bank and its intimate connections not only with uh, international terrorism and proliferation, but also directly with the IRGC uh, and, may, uh, and using existing law and new authorities, you could really reach out and touch uh, a critical component of the Islamic Republic in a very material way. Here I would point out that the metric of success for our renewed economic pressure on Iran is to follow the money. Uh, the, is sort of, it's a truism of uh, strategy that the adversary also gets a vote. And so it's actually been very interesting to watch how over the last several months the Iranians have begun thinking deeply about how to sanctions-proof their economy uh, to a much greater extent than they have done uh, up until now. Uh, Iran has changed its tune on its uh, sort of formal approach to cryptocurrency. Iran has historically been a very big skeptic of things like uh, Bitcoin or Ethereum, uh, and in, in, instead, they now have a national plan to develop their own national cryptocurrency as a way, very explicitly, as a way of moving assets into the digital domain and making them more difficult for the United States and, and its international partners to access. And this is, I think, a crucial point uh, because uh, our sanctions need to move to where the money is increasingly. And the last point, um, and sort of my final point, is uh, that we need to focus on the human terrain within Iran. It's something that we really haven't done uh, in a serious, to a serious extent uh, for a very, very long time. The protests that broke out in Iran in the last days of 2017 that have continued up until the present day uh, may be less uh, large, but they are more sustained than the protests that we saw in the middle of 2009, and they suggest a fundamental rupture between the Iranian people and the repressive regime that controls them. And our question should be, our thinking should be, how we can best, excuse me, how we can best exploit this to increase America's credibility, to decrease the legitimacy of the Islamic Republic. And we've begun to do that. We've be, uh, during the protests uh, in uh, January, February, uh, U.S. administration officials, uh, including na then National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster, spent a lot of time on U.S. government airwaves communicating with the Iranian people. And the President's uh, New Year's, uh, Persian New Year's message, no ruse message, uh, which he issued in March of uh, March 20th uh, of, uh, of last month, um, was a very strong and vocal, uh, throaty uh, denunciation of the depredations of the Islamic Republic. But I would argue that this is just a start. Uh, if we want a sustained public diplomacy effort that's intended to convince and to engage the Iranian people, we have to do a whole lot of other things, including systematic reform of the tools by which we reach out to these, to these people, to these captive populations abroad. That's uh, reform of the Voice of America's Persian service. That's reform of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. This is now happening. And this is, I, I think, the silver lining in the conversation, or one of the, one of the big ones. This is now happening organically within the administration. And it needs to be fed and continued and nurtured as a way of improving our outreach. But ultimately, all of these things won't be effective if we don't know what we want to say to the Iranian people. And this, I think, gets us to sort of the, the zone of danger that we're in right now. 
we know that a fateful decision is coming. We don't know whether it's going to happen on May 12th or if it's going to happen uh, several weeks hence, but we sort of understand that there is a, a moment of inflection that's underway. We don't know what our comprehensive strategy towards Iran is yet, uh, even though the president uh, announced the formation of a comprehensive strategy uh, back in October of last year, there really hasn't been much meat put on the bones, at least publicly. Uh, but there's an urgency to do so, because for the first time, recent weeks have seen direct military confrontation between the state of Israel and uh, Iran uh, in Syrian airspace, uh, in, uh, even in Israeli airspace. And this, uh, we hope, uh, should not be a portend of things to come. But it's quite clear that Iran's expansion, Iran's growing capabilities, have made it increasingly dangerous and increasingly urgent for us to marshal a comprehensive strategy. And I, I would just end with this observation. Uh, this month, May, is, the, uh, is going to be sort of the, the locus of not one fateful decision, but at least two. And the second has to do with the meeting that the president is supposed to have later in the month with the North Korean leader, with Kim Jong-un. Uh, and it's quite clear, at least previously, that the North Koreans had watched very closely the negotiations over the JCPOA and have watched Iran reap tremendous benefits, economic, political, and strategic, as a result of those negotiations. And up until now, I think uh, it's fair to say that the North Koreans were uh, eager to assume that they could do the same as a result of a new deal uh, hammered out with the Trump administration. And so what we decide on Iran and what we decide soon on Iran is going to have tremendous implications for the course, the success, and the, the expectations that we see uh, surrounding the, Iran, uh, the uh, nuclear negotiations that are likely to emerge with North Korea. So thank you. Thank you, Ilan. And before I open it up to questions from the audience, I'd like to ask the first question, and actually Ilan partially touched on that, uh, but I'd like to maybe ask in turn the other uh, panelists uh, as well is, uh, you know, there's been a lot of ink spilled on the, the issue of uh, linkages or perceived linkages between the Iran uh, nuclear uh, issue and the North Korean issue. Uh, with some people saying that walking away from the Iran deal would undermine U.S. leverage uh, with North Korea. Others say, you know, it's evidence, uh, looking back in history, that the axis of evil is still alive and well, and, you know, strong reasons to uh, uh, suspect both of these, uh, uh, I wouldn't say close allies, but allies of convenience. Uh, and so I would ask each of you uh, in, in order, uh, what linkage, linkages, if any, do you see between these two issues, and how should the the administration proceed uh, going forward in view of these linkages? Well, Elon is right that North Korea has traditionally played what about me whenever they saw um, someone else getting greater benefits. But there's also a pattern here in which the United States, under multiple administrations, hasn't been willing to allow the North Koreans to get away with actively cheating on previous agreements. 
And there's a great deal of euphoria now about the North Korean announcement that they're willing to denuclearize. But in 1992, there was the denuclearization declaration which, uh, to which they agreed and which Brent Scowcroft in his memoirs talked about as a triumph of diplomacy. Of course, after 1994 in the agreed framework, it was also clear that North Korea had cheated uh, and continued to cheat upwards of 1998 and 2000, and the U.S. response was clear. And so while some people say the United States can't pull away from this agreement, and by the way, there's a reason why our founding fathers had a ratification process for a treaty rather than simply uh, an agreement in the whole corker Cardin and compromise was was a whole nother layer to um, to dilute this sort of oversight. But there's a strong pattern where the United States, despite the best efforts of some diplomats and despite the best efforts of some lobbyists, is willing consistently seeks to calibrate our national security strategy to reality rather than simply put lipstick on a pig whether that pig is the Islamic Republic or whether it's North Korea, it doesn't matter. So the fact that the Trump administration is willing to walk away from the Joint Conference a Plan of Action, yeah, there's going to be some reputational uh, complaints on the part of Europe especially, but the North Koreans actually, and it might seem counterintuitive, might actually start to take the Trump administration more seriously. Yeah, I, I think that that's well said. Uh, there's been a lot written about uh, the history of the relationship between Iran and North Korea uh, in missiles. That's pretty obvious if you look at uh, several of their missiles and, and the comparison. Uh, in the nuclear realm, we don't know as much publicly um, in, in reports. There's a lot of allegations, sightings of officials at nuclear tests in North Korea, on the Iranian side, uh, high-level North Korean leader going to Tehran for 10 days, you know, during the re-election inauguration of Rouhani. Um, the extent to which they coordinate and talk, we should assume, is extensive. We just don't know. Um, and what we, what we do know is, if you look at that as a relationship that's there, and they look at each other and have used similar playbooks, both in negotiations in the past and in what they're operationalizing capabilities-wise. Uh, Secretary Pompeo, when he gave his first television interview on Sunday, he was asked about this question, and his response uh, was uh, very appropriate. Uh, you know, he said, well, do you think that it, the North Koreans are going to get upset if, uh, if we leave the Iran deal? And he said, well, <laughs> the North Koreans at this point have a lot higher priorities to think about than what we do with the Iran deal. And that's absolutely true. Uh, but also say that there's there's something silly if you, if you're thinking about this at home, you know it, uh, when it, when it's said on TV sometimes you nod your head oh that makes sense yeah you know if we break a deal with Iran you know how could we come to a deal with North Korea? But unpack that for a second in your mind intellectually. Kim Jong Un, you're Kim Jong Un, right? You're a you're a dictator. You've killed members of your family. Uh, you starve your people. Uh, you have one of the worst euphemisms ever created, re-education camps. Uh, you, you commit one of the, you know, some of the hor most horrific human rights abuses every day. Do you think that you're kind of like on a couch with your therapist thinking about your relationship with Donald Trump and, I don't know if I can really trust the guy. You know, he broke that deal with Iran. I don't, I don't feel like I like him right now. I don't know. No, because the United States has a boot at your throat. Economically... <laughs> political, militarily, and is basically telling you, 
You can sit down with us and discuss the dates by which we're going to verify you've denuclearized, or we can continue this maximum pressure, but it's not going away. And maybe, maybe your regime will at some point. Uh, that's actually what's happening. It's not like, oh, wow, I can't trust this guy. He doesn't hold to agreements that the United States has held to. No, the guy's a dictator. And the sooner that we align our policy and expectations of Iran with what we've told North Korea our expectations are, are, are of that regime, the better and, and more successful the possibilities are for an outcome with, with both. So I, I think that's absolutely right. And I would only add a couple of points. I, my, my sense is that this discussion that we're having and the likely outcome of what happens later in the month uh, with regard to the White House and the JCPOA should be clarifying for the North Koreans for two reasons. First of all, it, it provides an opportunity uh, for us to message a little bit about the durability or the permanence of executive agreements, right? Uh, if you go back and you look, there was a, a great poll that was done um, published in the Washington Post in, in mid-2016 that said that uh, Americans oppose the JCPOA on a margin of two to one. Uh, and so Obama rammed through a deeply unpopular uh, political agreement, much more than a strategic agreement, a political agreement. And that's why uh, th that side of the political aisle is having problems now, because the agreement uh, is seen as both unpopular and transient. Right. So, so now, as the Trump administration approaches uh, negotiations with North Korea, it can point to the difficulties politically that the JCPOA is having as saying, first of all, executive agreements aren't permanent, they're temporary, right? And here's how our system actually works. And second of all, you have to give me more so that the American people believe that you're actually sincere. Otherwise, this agreement's going to go away shortly too, as soon as I'm gone. Right? So I, I actually think that uh, it, it, at least one way it strengthens the White House's negotiating position. If I could just add one more linkage, uh, a legal linkage. In 1994 and thereafter when North Korea threatened to withdraw from the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, exactly the same threat which the Islamic Republic of Iran is making now, the legal consensus of the United States and its allies and the IAEA is that countries can walk away from the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, but only after they regularize all the concerns that developed under their membership in the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which means that, as North Korea found out, if Iran thinks it can simply walk away and tear up the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, it's, that's not going to be a magic formula for ridding itself of all these legal concerns that have developed now over decades because of their cheating. It's interesting. Well, at this point, let me open it up to questions from the audience, and I would uh, uh, stress that these should be questions, not statements, and try to keep them short so we can get as many in as we can. Uh, also, wait for the microphone. Uh, let's go with you, Ambassador. Thank you. Terry Miller with the Heritage Foundation. Um, could you please comment a bit more on the extent to which disagreements um, within the Western Alliance are undermining um, this process and, and how uh, the impact they will have on our ability to act effectively going forward, whatever the administration decides? I, I think it would be ridiculous to suggest as, as some... Um, on the right are that there isn't going to be reputational damage and that the Europeans aren't going to be upset with this. What my point was, however, is going back to the experience of the Clinton administration, that even when the Europeans get upset about unilateral sanctions, 
that oftentimes just the sheer size of the market of the United States versus the countries which might be targeted, for example, Libya and Iran back in 1996, lead the Europeans to, to settle down on the correct side of things. Um, and, and certainly when it comes to the financial sanctions with which Rich uh, has helped craft and helped implement, uh, that certainly seems to be the key issue. So yes, the Europeans will complain. No, I don't think this is as fatal a blow to our transatlantic relationships as some like to um, portray. Yeah, I, I would just add, I do think we shouldn't underestimate the impact that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu's revelation may have on this issue. Uh, we, you know, we still see the Europeans putting up their front. Their positions haven't changed. They make their statements. They're under a tremendous amount of commercial pressure domestically to to make those statements uh, until such time as the president actually reimposes sanctions and exits the deal. But I, I, as I understand, I'm not going to reveal people and sources, but there are a lot of conversations going on, particularly in Berlin, but also elsewhere in Europe, of people who are who are really upset that they feel like they were duped. Um, they are very rule-based, right? Their argument to stay in the deal is based on the fact that they made a commitment, and now they're faced with the reality that Iran didn't uphold its commitment and lied at the beginning of this, of this process. And that's sort of a, a contradiction that they, that they can't quite get through at the moment, and they're trying to struggle with, and they want to see the documents and, and work their way through it. But in the end... Uh, you know, some on the left, uh, today there was a, a document proposed of steps that the European Union could take uh, despite the reimposition of, of U.S. sanctions. The crisis group put this out. Uh, you know, all these different things. Trade wars with the United States. And instead of uh, doing oil business with the Central Bank of Iran through, you know, Deutsche Bank and, and regular banks, move all your trade with Iran to your central banks, just like the Central Bank of Iran does, and open yourself up to money laundering concerns, my God. Uh, and, and all these other crazy things. It's like, you know, in the end... This is still the, the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism. They're still building ballistic missiles. We now know they want to make nuclear weapons. They're still doing horrible things in Syria, propping up Assad. And so I think there has to be a little bit of step back and say, yes, we don't like the policy. We're not happy that Donald Trump did this. But we have so much more at stake in transatlantic relations are we going to really just come up with crazy ideas just to stick it to America because sanctions on Iran are back? I certainly hope not. That that would be unbelievable. I, I think that's right, and and I would only point out, I, you know, my my reading of the uh, International Crisis Group report, um, which Rich just referenced, was exactly the same, which is that this this smacks of desperation, right? These are tactics that the Europeans are trying to marshal in a desperate bid to save the deal, to sort of demonstrate that we can keep the framework, we can sort of have our cake and eat it too. And I, I think that actually goes to the root of uh, sort of the dilemma that's facing the White House, because I think Michael's absolutely right. Uh, if anybody tells you that we can get out of the deal and there won't be any second order or third order effects in our relationships with our trading partners, including those in Europe, I think that's simply not correct. I, I think the sort of the dint of durability in terms of the sanctions coalition that we need to recreate, and let's be clear, we need to recreate it because the Obama administration uh, in its negotiating process did what the Pentagon would call 
uh, it created an, an environment uh, that the Pentagon would call a self-licking ice cream cone, right? It went around saying that the sanctions coalition was fundamentally broken until our allies, who weren't as invested in the coalition, began to think, oh, the sanctions are broken. They don't work, and therefore we can normalize with Iran. So the center of gravity in the debate for the administration in terms of reimposing economic pressure is to convince those skittish allies and those uh, countries and companies that have a huge stake in remaining engaged or re-engaging with the Iranian economic sector that there's actually costs and consequences to doing so, that Iran, that re-establishing Iranian isolation uh, is necessary. It's necessary for alliance cohesion, and it's also necessary for a robust strategy to roll back the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism. So that's not going to be easy, but it's necessary. I just wanted to uh, add on just quickly two things. One, um, you know, for... For looking at the world, we shouldn't just think about our allies and think about Europe. Uh, we also have other countries that are importers of Iranian oil, and we have history and precedent of knowing who attempts to evade our sanctions and who doesn't. And if you're watching, you know who you are all the way across the oceans. And if I was the Treasury Department, I'd be looking very closely at you, so don't do it. Uh, but, uh, you know, if you're in Europe, there's just there's just so many other things and topics that that you're going to have to have the United States together with you on. Um, there will be a momentary you know fizzle that we're talking about, but after that, there's Russia, there there's China, there's trade issues, there's a whole bunch of other things. Yes, uh, this woman right here. This is really just curiosity. I am one of the millions and millions of people who voted for Donald Trump, even though I'm a registered Democrat, on this issue. My family voted on this issue. The perfidy, I am no other word for our former president, secretary of state, my senator, has endangered all of us. The one question I have is, what is there one thing we got out of it? I keep talking, listening to talking heads. There's like this, this. There's, does one of you have an answer? It's like, tell me one thing we got out of it that helps and makes the United States safer and richer. Does any of you have one fact? I, I don't know. I, I'd love to know. I'm just nosy. Well, I, I mean, I'm critical of the deal and always have been critical of the deal. That said, if I wanted to give an honest recitation of what proponents of the deal said and what true believers, there were two main, and I'm throwing out all the, the political polemics, there were two main strands. One was that this was a Deng Xiaoping moment, and by engaging the so-called reformists, that somehow we could put them over the top. Granted, I disagree with this. I'm just giving a recitation. Um, the, diff the problem is I see the reformists as playing good cop to the hardliners' bad cop rather than being fundamentally different. The other aspect is they said that this would um, fundamentally end the pathways to Iran's nuclear weapons, and again, that's been proven false. I mean, one thing, for example, when they said that this was the toughest inspection regimen, well, Iran agreed to abide by the additional protocol of the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty, as opposed to actually ratify it. Now, there's 129 countries which have agreed to ratify it and therefore have institutionalized much more robust inspections. So at the very least, you can say that Iran now has the 130th most robust inspection regime. And so th this is where, I mean, I think a lot of people share your frustration, and this is one of the reasons why the Iran deal didn't pass the smell test. There's also, uh, obviously, the line you hear a lot 
which in their moments of honesty, that even supporters of the deal, those who negotiated it, when you confront them with all the criticisms that they have to admit, they say, well, it bought us time. It bought us time. It delayed the crisis. Uh, we're not having to face the nuclear weapon today. You know, it may happen in 10 years, but we, we bought ourselves time. That, that's always the answer. Supreme Leader will die in the interim. Don't know what will happen next. We bought ourselves some time. And I think what we've just learned this week is the Iranians bought themselves some time. We didn't buy ourselves time. They've used this deal to expand throughout the region, to advance their missiles, to continue their R&D, to keep all their equipment and facilities in place and their infrastructure and officials and structure covertly in place. And uh, we can deal with a nuclear crisis today when we haven't talked about it, but the Rial is crashing. You know, they are under enormous stress internally. The protests are a symptom of it. They don't have nuclear weapons yet. They haven't actually developed the longer-range missiles that it would be a U.S. continental fear and European continental fear. Uh, or we can wait. We can wait 10 years, guarantee them economic security, make sure that their economy recovers, that they're stronger, that they're dug in throughout the region with missiles everywhere surrounding our allies, have the missiles perfected, have the R&D perfected, have all their capabilities there, and have the crisis then. It's a crisis no matter whether you confront it now or confront it later, we are stronger now to confront it. They are weaker now. Don't let that dynamic change. No, I, I think that's absolutely right. And, and Michael and Rich, uh, I think, hit upon the two main drivers of what propelled, right? Because really the question is not so much why people are beholden to the deal now, but sort of what was the mindset, what was the motivation of the administration? What, what, are they, what were they trying to do, right? Assuming no ill will, assuming that they actually were acting in good faith. Uh, and really, I, I would point to two things, right? One was a fundamental misreading, as Michael said, of the internal dynamics within Iran, right? This illusory conservative versus reformist challenge, when in fact, by the way, you know, Hassan Rouhani still uh, in the New York Times and in the Washington Post still gets cited as a reformist president. Hassan Rouhani, by the way, was one of the original revolutionaries that stepped off the plane with the Ayatollah Khomeini when he landed uh, back from exile in Tehran in February of 1979, right? So he's... Uh, maybe a little bit more of a company man than he is a reformist, but just saying. Um, but there is this uh, permanent uh, conversation that happens in Washington about the internal struggle, the internal balance between uh, liberal forces and, and uh, conservative forces. I would argue that there is such a struggle, but it's much more outside of the government than within it, right? You're seeing these protesters, you're seeing women imprisoned for taking off their headscarves because they don't want to live under uh, Sharia law, right? That's a much more fundamental repudiation of the regime than anything Hassan Rouhani has ever said, right? And the second is this sort of the psychological dynamic that Rich talked about, right? Kicking the can down the road, right? The psychologists have a, a, a word for it, right? This is a Pavlovian response, right? Uh, the Obama administration, for whatever reason, convinced itself that there was a binary choice to make. It was either the deal or war, right? You could argue that that's not the case. I, I firmly do not believe that that was the case. Those were the only two options. But if you proceed from the notion that those are the only two options, uh, then a deal, even a terrible one that only delays but doesn't fundamentally divert Iran from a nuclear path is in the aggregate a good thing. And that's really where the conversation is now.
And actually, if I can just add one third aspect to this that the Europeans focused on. There was this belief in the Obama administration that if we only shower the Iranians with trade, we can bring them in uh, from the cold, they can join the international community. Oftentimes, proponents of the deal would say the Bush administration tried coercion, and look how many centrifuges Iran installed. That's evidence that coercion doesn't work. But between 1998 and 2005, the European Union, under this idea of showering them with trade, brought the, um, tripled their trade with Iran. During the same time period, the price of oil quintupled. Hassan Rouhani, as Secretary of the National Security Council, was the person in charge of distributing that money. About 70% of it seems to have gone into the then covert nuclear and ballistic missile programs which is an indication that the reason why Iran had this massive expansion in the first decade of the 21st century wasn't because of too much coercion. It was because of too much diplomacy. And we have time for one more question. Let me just go with this man right here in the second row. Thank you. Uh, is it legally possible if Trump chooses to withdraw from the deal is it legally possible for him to unilaterally impose a sanction which says that all transactions with uh, to and from Iran are prohibited from using the U.S. financial system? Yeah, so uh, the way to answer that is, first of all, yes. Um, it, U.S. unilateral sanctions, so I'm going to make a distinction because it gets a little bit confusing, and when you try to boil it down into the 30-second soundbite, it's hard to really understand what we're talking about in sanctions language, and people in government get confused by it, too. There are, are bilateral sanctions on Iran that have been in place, you know, from the beginning of the Islamic Republic um, that we started increasing uh, based on uh, terrorist attacks against uh, our embassy, against Cobar Towers, others. Um, when we go back to those original ones, we have never really backed down from the idea that it is illegal for a U.S. company to do business with Iran, except for various humanitarian channels and exceptions that we make. And Iran cannot do really do a transaction uh, that uh, brings it, its money over here. What we decided to do in 2010 and then in 2011 on a central bank, and then in 2012 and 2013, was this idea that we can leverage our financial system against the rest of the world's financial system and make people choose. It's less about whether or not, you know, your Bank of America is going to do a transaction with the central bank of Iran. We can already make that happen here with our own laws. But how do you make sure that Deutsche Bank's not doing those transactions? And that's the laws that we've passed. And the way it works is if you are a European bank or you're a Chinese bank or a Russian bank, if you hold correspondent accounts, payable through accounts, if you conduct transactions with the Central Bank of Iran after May 12th, assuming the president does not renew the waiver, it is illegal under U.S. law uh, for that transaction to occur, and the penalty, mandatory penalty, is to deny you or somehow constrict your own correspondent and payable through accounts with U.S. banks. So you are jeopardizing your entire access to the U.S. financial system. That is catastrophic. 
which means it doesn't only just apply to a bank. It applies to all the companies that need banks to do deals. And so overnight, everybody who is a corporate attorney in any multinational corporation puts a memo to everybody in, in, in their business and says, halt all further business with Iran until further notice, until we can figure out what's going on. And that will have an immediate impact on the regime. All their accounts overseas, all the Iranian accounts overseas from the central bank, go on lockdown. Can't move the money. They're in escrow. Can you imagine what that means for the Iranian regime right now that's under so much stress on the real after they've combined their two exchange rates and are drawing down their foreign exchange reserves most likely? It's very opaque. We don't know. But it's the only way to avoid price hikes internally. And now you don't have access to your overseas foreign exchange reserves. That's a lot of pressure. That's why we see saber rattling. The mullahs don't want that to happen. And it can happen overnight through the U.S. government's current laws. And is that the sanction you were talking about Correct. That's the May 12 sanction. Now, if it's just by itself, remember, there's other banks. And we took them off of our blacklists under the JCPOA. The SWIFT system in Europe... This is the ones and zeros that process the electronic transfers of money. The SWIFT system has reconnected all the Iranian banks and the central bank. We passed a law in 2012 that said the president is authorized to impose sanctions on those board members who are all banks themselves to impose those same sanctions on those banks if they don't disconnect the Iranian banks from the system, including the central bank specifically. That's a big question mark for this administration, what they're going to do after May 12th to ensure that happens. And with that, I'd like to uh, thank the panel, and please join me in thanking them for a very interesting presentation. Thank you. I'm not some point that uh, will have the camera.